0: So I started brainstorming with the guys from giant about the idea and I was thinking names like trail tamer, which in, in hindsight sounds so terrible, but I just, I couldn't figure out a name. It, like you could have been calling me the, the tamer right now instead of trail boss. Doesn't really roll off the tongue or whatever.
1: Welcome to Trail Effect episode 23. I am your host, Josh Blum. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. For episode 23, we bring you Jeff Linowski. Jeff has been a staple in the world of mountain biking since the mid-90s. Jeff provides some great historical context for the sport of mountain biking, Jeff talks about the unlikely bricks that has gotten him to where he is today, and his never-settle-for-results outlook on life. We also discuss what makes a great mountain bike community, and close with the amazing partnerships that Jeff has within the industry. Support for Trail comes from Smith's Bike Shop in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Smith is a full-service bike shop that is a retailer for Trek, Bicycle Company, and Celsa Cycles. Smith also has a full line of components and accessories from Bontrager and other various companies. For more information about Smith's Bike Shop, go to www.smithsbikes.com. A special thanks goes out to Ben Wellenak of Mountain Bike Radio for supporting this podcast and to the people who have shared their time and knowledge. Without this, we would not have these stories to tell. This podcast is an Evolution Trail Services production. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.evotrails.com.
2: Here we are. We're recording. Uh, we got uh, episode twenty-three here with Jeff Linowski on Trail Effect. How's it going today, Jeff?
0: It's going great. How are you?
2: I'm doing great. Um, it's really good to to have you on this show as the Trail Boss on the Trail Effect. And let's uh, let's let's dig into your backstory a little bit. I know, you know, you've been around for a really long time, and I mean that in a really good way. But I'm sure <laughs> a lot of people have, you know, you've probably got your backstory out there. A bunch you know so if there's something unique you want to get into that maybe hasn't been said before you know let's let's hear what you like how you got into this awesome world of, of mountain biking and trails
0: i definitely have been around quite a long time it gets weird when you meet 40 year old men and women that say they grew up watching you it's not just teenagers anymore i've been riding professionally for close to 25 years been riding mountain bikes for probably close to 35 so I grew up in New Jersey. Bicycle riding wasn't super popular in the '80s. I just remember seeing a magazine in a store one day about BMX and picked it up and was super intrigued by it. I had a bike at home that would look like a miniature motorcycle. It had like a banana seat with a gas tank on it, and I went home and stripped all that stuff off to make it look like a BMX bike, and that kind of launched my love for for doing tricks on bikes. So flash forward. You know, after going through high school and riding BMX and stuff like that, I never did it competitively or anything because I was in New Jersey and it was the 80s. So it wasn't like nowadays with, you know, X Games or YouTube or anything like that. You kind of had to just buy magazines and read about a sport that pretty much existed in California. So I rode BMX through high school and everything. And then I was 6'4". So I was getting kind of tall for the 20-inch bikes. And I got a summer job at a bike shop. And that was right when mountain bikes were kind of getting popular. So I just figured a mountain bike was like a big BMX bike that, that would fit me. So when I got my first mountain bike, I rode it as such, I was more concerned with riding around, uh, riding off jumps and jumping curbs and doing BMX type stuff, on, on a mountain bike versus actually mountain biking. Then I would go on shop rides with the, with the guys from the bike shops that were actually mountain bikers and. They'd always be like, let's go knucklehead, like stop riding on the picnic tables in the parking lot or, you know, doing jumps on the side of the trail. This is about distance riding and stuff like that. So um, that was my first introduction to mountain biking was just getting it and thinking it was a big BMX bike. And fortunately at the time, mountain biking was a lot more consolidated than it is now. There were only three disciplines that you could basically do. There was cross-country riding if you wanted to go far. There was downhill riding if you wanted to go downhill fast, and there was trials. Trials was pretty popular back then, especially on the East Coast. I think that's because our terrain is just really, really, really technical. So as I got into mountain biking a little bit more and I'd go to events with people or guys that would work at the bike shop, would race or anything like that, I became aware of mountain bike trials as an option because on the East Coast it was super common to have cross-country races and trials so you would do a cross country race and then when they'd sit around and wait for awards and things like that people would do little obstacle courses and stuff like that and it was it was observed trials and that's kind of what i gravitated towards so what was your first mountain bike uh, my first my first mountain bike was something that i just got off a of buddy and i had that for about 2 or 3 weeks until i actually bought one and so so if you're we're being super technical it was basically a brand called general which was out of the east coast And it was like a pull out of the garbage (laughs) kind of bicycle that I just threw together and rode for like two or three weeks until I like uh, tried out the concept of are mountain bikes fun or not. Um, The second I got on one, it seemed awesome and I really liked it. So then I purchased my first mountain bike through the bike shop and that was a GT Caracorm. That's a classic first bike for sure. It's a classic first bike. It was a GT dealer. It was I think it was probably bike of the year in like 1985 or something ridiculous. And I remember it was like, you know, buying it at the bike shop it was like $550 or something like that, which was insane amount of money for a 17, 18 year old kid for a bike. But I got on that general that we pulled out of the garbage and I really liked it and decided to plunk down and, and get a mountain bike.
2: Yeah. So you went there, you obviously, you know, you went into trials a lot. Did you still do uh, cross country and downhill at the same time since there was the three disciplines then?
0: I did. So, um, that bike that I got was the summer before I went to college. So then I took that mountain bike and went to East Rouseburg university, um, which was only an hour away, but it was right on the Delaware water gap. And it's kind of interesting now because that's one of my favorite places to ride now. It's completely different trail system and everything, but you ride remnants of what I rode 30 years ago in college, but Uh, I did. I got into cross country riding. I got into downhill and, and trials. Most of my time was spent just riding around campus, jumping on benches and stairs and stuff like that. So trials was always what I was best at, but I did do cross country and downhill. I was always six, four and stuff like that. And, you know, bigger dude. So I would race expert or pro at downhill or expert or pro at trials. And then I would, you know, hop in sport class cross country races and stuff like that early on because I just didn't have the fitness and I like doing tricks and jumps and stuff like that. Um, I did that all through college. Um, My senior year is when I randomly decided to take a trip to Traverse City, Michigan to compete in the Norba National Championships. And it just so happened that Traverse City is not an area with tons of technical terrain and stuff like that. So that national championship was pretty much all man-made stuff. So if anybody's listening to the show and they're not familiar with trials, we keep talking about trials. Trials is the discipline of mountain biking where it doesn't matter how far you go or how fast you go. It's just about riding technical terrain. So a, a trials course might only be 50 to 100 yards long. But within that 50 to a hundred yards long, there's a continuous ribbon on the right to make sure you stay in bounds, and a continuous ribbon on the left to make sure you stay in bounds. And, and back then it was up and over rocks and logs and streams and anything that they could basically route you over that would be super difficult to ride. So back back then a beginner, beginner trials course just might be a normal section of trail. Uh, an intermediate section of a trials course might be literally a section of the cross country course that a lot of people would walk. And then an expert pro course would be, you name it, rocks, logs, whatever. So that's what trials is if anybody's listening to it and, they, and they're wondering what the heck we're even talking about. So when we went to Traverse City that year, it's basically super sandy terrain and everything. So there's no rocks or logs to be found. This this national championship was held in a small park downtown Traverse City and it was all giant electrical spools and cars and picnic tables and all man-made stuff, which is basically all I rode on at college all the time. So I ended up winning the national championship. I think it was my, pretty much my first ever like year of doing pro competitions. I totally didn't expect it, but I was just good at doing big bunny hops and stuff like that. I lacked the, the nuance that a more experienced rider would have, you know, the fine technical skills on wet, slippery surfaces. But if it was do a big bunny hop or do a big jump or a big drop, like I had that totally down. So I won a national championship and went back to college, finished that last year. And that's when I, you know, I always grew up in New Jersey, wishing that I could be a professional bike rider, thinking it would be cool. But living in New Jersey, that seemed like the most far-fetched idea of, you know, ever. It wasn't even, you know, nowadays with YouTube and stuff like that, it's probably a little bit more conceivable for a 20-year-old kid to say they want to be a professional mountain bike rider because mountain biking is pretty established and your parents can see it places and stuff like that. We're talking the days where when I dropped the idea on my parents that I had just finished college and I wanted to become a professional mountain bike rider in a sport that was super small, especially on the East Coast, like it was non-existent, that idea pretty much hit like a lead balloon. It was not well received. Um, (laughs) So, uh, I've always been a pretty... Conservative dude. So I finished college. I, you know, would send out literally Xerox resumes, which is also funny how much the sport has changed. I would go 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 to the library and just make Xerox resumes and send them to like literally every single person I could possibly find, and would try to get sponsored. And I wasn't really able to make it possible out of college financially. I had some people give me some free gear, so I just figured I'd get a job and compete on weekends. So I started doing that and I did that for two two full years right out of college, working full time job and then traveling to events and stuff like that. And then I randomly hooked up with Schwinn and they offered me my first pro contract and I decided to leave my job and have never looked back. So we're we're gonna go back into the way back machine since that's where we are. This is yeah, we're like super way pre podcast (laughs) days.
2: Yeah, and I was and the reason why we're going there is because that's I was really big into mountain biking then as well. I wasn't, obviously, at your level. But what year were you at Traverse City? That
0: was uh, 1993.
2: Okay. I went there, and my first time going to Traverse City would have
0: been in 96. Okay. So, so that was always a super awesome event. Yeah. And they would always have the super short downhill, and they would have jumps on the cross-country course. They always had really fun courses because they lacked the elevation. So they made up for it with cool features and stuff like
2: that. Yeah. And when you went with Schwinn, was that around the time that Schwinn was actually connected with Yeti?
0: It was actually before that. Okay. So that, that's how long I've been mountain biking. I, so the story goes, I think it was, it was 95 because it was two years after I graduated college and I was working. I would still continue my, my quest of sending out sponsorship proposals and resumes all day, every day. The cool thing about having a full-time job is now I didn't have to go to the library anymore. I can go and and make them on the company's copier. So my job was doing a job called production engineering. So basically, I worked at a plastics manufacturer. We made big plastic molded parts and stuff like that. And I would walk around with a clipboard all day and make sure that the machines were keeping fast cycle times and stuff like that. So I had some idle time. And I would sit there at work and make Sponsorship resumes all day long, and it would be pretty awkward when I'd leave those resumes like on the co- company copier machine in the front <laughs> office, and then like the owner would come back and be like, "Hey, you left this on the copy machine," It'd be pretty embarrassing. So I used to send that to everybody, and I sent one to Trek and talked to a guy Dave Maurer, who I still still buddies with in the industry years and years and years later. But Trek was the first main major company to offer me anything. And they offered me a OCLV trial frame to use for trials, which if you used to ride back then, you'd know that in hindsight, that would have been a terrible idea trying to ride trials on one of those bikes. And then a Y bike to race downhill because I was also racing pro downhill at the time. Um, so that was my offer. And at the time Trek was by far, like the coolest brand around. They had the Rocket Boy stuff and and everything. So I was super pumped. So I went into the bike shop that I worked at through college or through high school where I bought that first GT and they were not a Trek dealer. And I was super excited and I was like, oh my God, you guys aren't going to believe it. I got a sponsorship offer from Trek, which I thought was like the best thing ever. And they were like, well, did you ever talk to anybody from Schwinn? Because they were a Schwinn dealer. And like, I, I grew up, you know, dreaming of having a Schwinn sting one day that was like the coolest BMX bike ever prior to that when I was a kid and whatever. So I was aware of Schwinn, but Schwinn wasn't cool in the mountain bike world yet. So I was like, no nah, dude, I'm, I'm riding for track. This is like the, the coolest thing ever. And they're like, hold on just before you take that, let us make one call to the guys at Schwinn. And I had already called Schwinn, but this was literally when I didn't know anybody. So you would just cold call people and you were you were working against the tide set because trials wasn't super popular. The only person doing trials in the, you know, publicly or anybody knew of was Hans mm-hmm. Um, and he was already really good at marketing it, but trials as a competitive sport was super small. So I had reached out to Schwinn. I would have to cold call people. I'd have to try to explain to them who I was and whatever. So it was a lot of cold calling. They, they took my call and said they weren't interested in whatever. So when the bike shop said they were going to follow up, I didn't really have high hopes. Um, but now looking back, they were a huge Schwinn dealer and I'm sure that Schwinn just did it as a solid. The guy who gave me my first sponsorship offer at Schwinn is now at Pearl Azumi. So it's kind of come full circle 30 years later or something like that. Um, but Schwinn offered me two complete bikes. So that was a much, much, much better uh, sponsorship offer. So I was like, "Heck yeah! I guess I'm not riding for Trek. I'm going to ride for Schwinn because it's a complete bike for trials and a complete bike for downhill." So I did that, and then a couple year a couple of months later, the bike shop that orchestrated this whole thing was having a spring sale, and they asked me to do a trials demo at their sale, and I figured I would because you know all this stuff was made possible by them. It, it's a shop called Cycle Crafter. Parsippany, New Jersey, they're still there. So I was doing a mountain bike trials demo and then the guys from Schwinn happened to be in New York City because the five borough bike tour was going on, which is a big uh, bicycle ride through all the five boroughs of New York City. And it used to be huge, like tens of thousands of people would ride around New York City. So Schwinn was sponsoring it. They went to that event. So I guess they just came to visit one of their local dealers and, you know, make a courtesy call and they saw me doing the trials demo and I guess they realized that I was fairly decent at, at writing and stuff. So they're like, Hey, would you mind if we connected you with our PR agency? And I was like, sure. They still really didn't, didn't really think anything of it. it. just seemed fun for me. So a few days later they booked me on a show in New York city called breakfast time. It was on the FX channel, which used to be a news channel. Now it's kind of just like some weird, Movies and stuff like (laughs) that. Yeah, movies and uh, a couple TV series and stuff like that. But FX was, I guess, I don't know, I might get canceled, but it was a precursor to Fox News or something back in the day or something. Probably less uh, politically biased, though. And it was Tom Bergeron was the host, which is kind of funny, the Dancing with the Stars guy. (laughs) So I went on there and did a mountain bike trials demonstration, and it went great. So then they... They watched it and they're like, "Hey, we'll try to book some more stuff for you." So, within this whole thing happening, riding for Schwinn and just me just working a full time job, the, the first year at, at Schwinn, I just got the two bikes and I was working a full time job. They got me on Breakfast Time, and then they got me on Regis and Kathy Lee, and they got me on CBS Early Show and the Today Show. All this stuff, just as a dude working a full time job and doing the stuff on the side. So that was and. The, all the reason all this happened was because it was Schwinn's hundredth year anniversary that year, and mountain biking was really popular. So it was a really easy story for them to pitch to different TV shows and stuff like that. And then when you could have a bike rider that could go in and do some tricks inside the studio, it was kind of like shooting fish in a barrel. It was super easy for them to to book stuff. So that was the reason why all this stuff came to be. So you know, looking back, when I took the first Schwinn deal, the only reason I took it was because it was. Uh, two complete bikes versus a bike in a frame, but I didn't really have the foresight ever. Like I'd like to say this was some big, some big plan from the get go, but the reality is I didn't have I didn't realize that it was Schwinn's hundredth anniversary. I didn't realize the impact of riding for such a iconic brand at the time, and being an American rider and a U.S. champ and and everything how it would be this culmination of all the, these things that would allow me to have all those opportunities within the first year of even riding professionally. So it was pretty, it was pretty cool. Like before, before I even finished my first year of riding for a pro team, like I had, you know, accrued more, more uh, access to like the general consumer, general TV watcher, anything like that, probably than any, any mountain bike rider out there. So it definitely put me in a good position for, for the following year when I actually, was able to get paid by Schwinn and quit my job and stuff like that.
2: So I'm curious, obviously trials was really a focus of yours with the, with the demos and doing and doing on, on air stuff. Yeah. I can't remember what did Schwinn have for a mountain bike that was a downhill bike then, or did they do something where they took another frame and put their name on it?
0: So the, so the very first year or the, those early years, they had a bike called the Schwinn sweet spot. And it was basically an aluminum version of like a Trek Y bike because they were all using that unified rear triangle back then. Yeah, now I know. Yeah, I know the bike you're talking about. So it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a yep. pivot point where your water bottle would be, and then the pull back end. So it was, it was really similar to the Trek. That was the very first bike, um, and then I'm thinking I think that was probably that was maybe the first year or two, and then right after that I think that. Sh- That's right when Schwinn bought Yeti. So all the Schwinn downhill bikes were Yeti Yeti built Schwinn branded bikes. And then they became Schwinn bikes as well. Like they offered Mm -hmm. a a bike called the straight eight. Yep. Which is a pretty amazing bike for its time. Exactly. So that was, that was that era. I think we went straight from the, from that single pivot bike to the Yeti.
2: Yeah. So and we can, we can move on from this topic, but it's just interesting because the shop that I deal with that I've dealt with for years, actually the shop that's the sponsor of the show was a Schwinn dealer um, before Schwinn went to where they are now with the, with um, being in big box stores and a truck yeah. dealer. Okay. So it was, in, you know, so I I remember that era when especially the Schwinn's and the Yetis were, I mean, they had, they had an awesome Norba team too as well. I mean, they had some stuff going on with, everything when they went to Yeti and had getting the home, even the cross country homegrown stuff was, um, they're amazing bikes for their time.
0: And there was always a lot of support for Schwinn in the Midwest and particular Wisconsin. So that first five years of riding for Schwinn, I pretty much had temporary residency in Wisconsin because I guess it's a cold winter thing and, and cycling is always super popular in Wisconsin, but there was always these huge indoor sales. So, between like March and April, I would be in Green Bay at Stadium Bikes doing this they'd they'd rent out the ice ice arena and fill it with bikes and then there was obviously the Wheel and Sprocket sale, which was always massive, and there was budget bicycle down in Madison. Yep. So all these dealers would always have these annual sales and it would be a couple weekends apart where they'd all rent out these stadiums and set up thousands of bikes and every year they'd sell through them. And every year I'd go and wonder like, all right, everybody in Wisconsin has to have a bike by now. Like I can't imagine that they're going to sell more bikes and every year they'd sell more and more bikes. And I would go to those events and do trials demos. them. it was perfect because what else are you going to do? That's 100% self-contained, not weather dependent at all because it's, it's perfectly temperature controlled indoors, perfect floor, great crowd. It was always a really, really fun time to do those events. Yeah.
2: Yeah, we had a similar. We had a shop in Lacrosse that did a similar event where they'd rent out the auditorium and sell more bikes than you even like. You wondered if people even rode them, you know. So, well, that went deeper in the backstory than I thought it would. Have, but it was, it was awesome stuff. I mean, that's <laughs> that's just that's why we're here. I mean, that's those are good stories. How did you? We were talking a little bit before we started this. How did the how did the Trail Boss name come about that you've kind of branded yourself with?
0: So. I guess that kind of goes with the saying, like you could build a thousand bridges and no one will call you a bridge builder and then insert whatever you want after that. Um, It's funny because I never, ever, ever thought like I would ride down the trail and hear constantly like, yo trail boss, (laughs) because I've ridden professionally for over 25 years and, and the sport and, and everything has changed so much. Like I would film for Regis and Kathy Lee. I never heard, Never rode down the street and heard somebody yell, yo, Regis, or do these competitions or New World Disorder videos or anything. Nothing has resonated like these YouTube videos have. It's crazy. But the whole idea behind that was I've been doing the YouTube channel for three and a half years now, maybe, something like that. And the idea was I had always filmed video parts like growing up. And that was like a big thing, you know, to film one or two video parts throughout your throughout your year. And that kind of started to dry up as YouTube started to get more popular and people started getting away from like the full blown film production DVDs or, you know, video parts and stuff like that. it just became like a lot more like online snackable content versus these big features. Um, so that was probably somewhere around like 2010 or something like that is when I kind of stopped filming for those videos or they just, weren't really even like being produced so much anymore. So then I had a a void for for a few years where I'd kind of missed doing video parts and stuff like that. And I was talking to the guys from Giant, this is about three and a half, four years ago, about getting some kind of video series going. The guys from Pink Bike were saying I should the publisher who was over at the time was saying I should do some kind of video series. And I had started thinking about doing something, but I wasn't sure like if I was going to try to do a trials video series. It's kind of hard to like come up with a new trials video all the time, especially when this was like right when Danny McCaskill, well, Danny McCaskill was already in full swing for about five years, but like, you know, he's spending a year making a video part. I'm thinking like, what kind of video part am I going to make? That's going to even remotely look cool compared to his six times a year or something like that. And I was also getting into trail biking a ton back then. Like, I, I had just finished riding racing enduro, so I was really into trail riding. I really liked doing technical stuff. It, it, you know, I had this trials background. It was always kind of like my niche to, to be the dude on the ride that rides the unridable section and stuff like that. So I kind of got this idea in my head that if I wanted to make a video series, when you just go out, and I remember from like all my old video part days, you're, you never feel like you're finished at all. Like you film for these video parts and you always feel like you left something on the table. So I started thinking, well, if I make a video series that focuses on riding really technical trails, then the story has a beginning and an end and you just have to like write what happens in the middle. But then there's no like, I should have done two more back wheel hops or an extra bunny hop. Like once you ride the trail, it's over and it's a nice, concise package that has a start and an end. And... The story is just trying to ride this unridable trail. So that was my idea. I was going to make a video series where I tried to find iconic trails that people had trouble riding and then make a video of me riding it and try to give some tips and stuff like that. Because as I started to, as I was, I had been racing enduro for a few years and still doing trials demos. So people were aware that I was riding trail bikes and they'd also seen me do trials demos. I guess that's the one part that I left out. I would start traveling around to different venues and since people knew that I'd do both, it always come up in the conversation like, Oh, you ride mountain bikes too. I have a trail for you. You know, I have a trail that's impossible. So that was kind of the impetus of it. So I started brainstorming with the guys from giant about the idea and I was thinking names like trail tamer, which in in hindsight sounds so terrible, but I just, (laughs) I couldn't figure out a name. Like you could have been calling me the, the tamer right now instead of trail boss. Doesn't really roll off the tongue or whatever. And then the guys from giant were like, Hey, how about trail boss? And honestly, at first I, there was a, I had a few reservations. I grew up in New Jersey. The owner of fit bikes is a guy, Robbie Morales. He used to ride BMX trails and in BMX, like when you build trails or you're like the best guy at the trails, you're the trail boss. So Robbie Morales was always Trail Boss. He had a signature bike from Standard called, or yeah, his signature bike was from Standard. They still make it called the Trail Boss. So I already knew that there was people called Trail Boss. So I didn't like it for that reason. And I also thought it sounded super egotistical to like make a video series called Trail Boss. But then I started thinking about it and I like wrote this uh, little synopsis that said like with the proper intel, anybody could be a Trail Boss, but one false move and mother nature will remind you who's really in charge. And I started thinking about it from that perspective. Like, let me make these videos and show you what it's like to ride schooners trace at Brown County or, you know, the waterfall and national national trail in Arizona. Like here's the, here's the Intel go out with your buddies and be the trail boss. But if you screw up, mother nature will always remind you who's in charge, you know? So it wasn't necessarily about me. It was about like a movement, like, when you go out with your buddies, try to be the troubles. Yeah. So that was the idea. And uh, now, four years later, nobody calls me Jeff. <laughs> if, if it's like, you know, somebody you run into on the trail. I don't even know if people know my name. They're just like, what's up, Trouble? So it's kind of funny.
2: Yeah. Well, it's taken off for sure. And it's especially, you know, in, in the world we live in now, you know, we I think, I, I mean, for me personally, I started consuming a lot more YouTube content in the last year than I ever have. In the last year, 100%. I mean, it's, which is good. You know, we needed, we needed a, a distraction, you know? So, but we kind of talked about how you went from a little bit, how you went from your content or from your athlete competitive side of things, you're still an athlete to your content creator side. Talk a little bit about Enduro. I, let's go there a little bit and how that, you know, cause Enduro obviously has now gotten to probably be one of the most popular, if not the most popular, um, discipline, if you want to call it that just mainly because it's like. Mountain biking. What, you know, what, how'd that go with you in the early days? And how, what did you think of it as Enduro
0: was getting going? So I got into the Enduro thing, like you said, kind of in its infancy a little bit. And I guess it's been about 11 years now. So up until 11 years ago, I was still pretty heavily into the dirt jumping thing, the street trials, all that kind of stuff. And then eleven years ago, actually, yeah, it was eleven years ago. Probably last month, I was messing around with my good friend Aaron Chase at his house, and we were doing some jumps in the snow. It was like we had a bunch of snow that winter. We had a warm day, so we shoveled out a jump, and we were heading to jump in the snow and having a blast. And as the day got warmer, the snow, the ground started getting softer. And I hit the jump. I came up a little bit short. And I just jumped over the handlebars like I always would have, but I just landed weird and broke my leg. So it was a really bad break. I broke my tip fib and I was off the bike from February till I think May. So pretty long time. I think it was about 12 weeks or 10 weeks non-weight bearing. So when I got back on my bike, I got on my mountain bike more for rehab and stuff like that. This is how, like seems like everybody gets into cycling in general. Yeah, for sure. It is through that. I had always like I grew up riding cross country and downhill or whatever, but then obviously in that middle part of my career I was pretty much only dirt jumping and riding trials and stuff like that. So I always enjoyed riding that stuff. But it's just a matter of time and things like that. I just wasn't doing it as often. So now I break my leg, I come back. I can't just get on my bike and do trial stuff. I can't go do dirt jumping because my leg was healed, but I couldn't, you know, try to do some wall ride and bomb drop down from eight feet or whatever. So, so cross country riding allowed me to like get out on my bike and get moving and stuff like that. And it was a little bit more low risk. And then I started doing some photo shoots for Fox at the time and things like that because I I needed to do, you know, fulfill my obligations and everything. So then I kind of felt like, huh, if I'm going to like be in these photo shoots riding a trail bike, I feel like, honestly, I was like, I I feel washed up as like the, the trials rider if I just start doing like trail riding photo shoots. So it was probably just like a insecurity ego thing. I was like, well, if I'm going to be in photo shoots, I better at least race. I had never like, I hadn't raced in 15 years or whatever, you know? So then I just went on like the full, full board training program and basically trained full time. Like I was an Enduro rider back then, which nobody really knew what that was. I was like full training cross-country enduro guy at the time. And that fall, I started racing because there was a bunch of enduros popping up. And they're they're quite a bit different than they were now. They're basically a lot more like similar to Super D at the time, or which used to exist back in the day. So, I mean, enduro tracks now are basically downhill tracks. Back then, they were a lot smoother than downhill tracks. There would be climbs in the middle of an enduro stage. So, it was a little bit more like XC-ish than it is now. But I just like dove head first into the Enduro thing and started racing and I did okay that fall. And then I just went into the next season and started training and would race a bunch of Enduros because at the time I wasn't really filming for videos anymore because they didn't really exist. You know, nobody was really making DVDs or anymore or stuff like that. Um, the only thing I was really doing was trials, demos and it's gets kinda of boring if you Like, I really always loved doing trials demos. It's fun to interact with the crowd and whatever. But, like, I always liked practicing for something or training for something. When I first started, it would, you know, I would do trials demos and stuff. But you were always training for a competition. And then even with the, when I was filming for the mountain bike videos and stuff like that, I would start off the season with, like, a list of stuff I wanted to get in my video part that year. So I always felt like I was training for something, like, Chasing a particular goal, and then when all that stuff stopped, and you know the couple years leading up to my breaking my leg, it was just going out and just shredding with your buddies. I don't even know; like it wasn't really there wasn't YouTube and there wasn't video parts. You were just doing it to do it, and then I would do a mountain bike trials demo, but there was like no real reason to try hard other than the fact that you were trying hard. But like you weren't training for anything. So breaking my leg pretty much. Changed all that because then I decided to start training for Enduro. And then once I did one race and I got hooked and, you know, just like anything else, the first, when you first start doing things, the learning curve is so steep and the, and the gains that you can make in a new sport are so, so good that it's intoxicating. So I went from like doing okay in my first Enduro to podium, podiuming all the time and stuff like that. So it was something that I really enjoyed. I probably did that for about five years something like that. That led into (laughs) that led into the video thing because then just like everything else, like I was doing a ton of demos for giant all the time. So then I started to get frustrated because I was doing upwards of 30 weekends a year for giant doing trials demos. So that's super time consuming. And uh, it was basically one of the things that led to the split with them was it was just super time consuming and I was doing a ton of stuff that like it was fun, but I was getting to the point where I'd rather go out ride with people and interact and do stuff like that than go do grand openings for new stores. It just wasn't really that fun anymore. It would, you'd spend a four four days a week flying into a new city, building up a set of obstacles, do a demo for a handful of people and then fly out of there. So it wasn't giving me a lot of time to train for Enduro too. So, I decided to stop racing enduro because if I wasn't training for it, you can't do well against, cause now, now we're like five to 10 years into enduro and people are super serious. So the last year I raced enduro, I did really well on the East coast. And then I just didn't have the time to train and and it's kind of ridiculous to think that you're just going to like do do 30 trials demos a year and then hop in a pro enduro and do well. It's like disrespectful to the other guys that are like training their butts off. Um, so then I started thinking of like, well what can I do on my trail bike that's could keep me visible and then that led to to doing the, the trail boss video series.
2: Yeah, so traveling, you brought that up. That's probably one of my favorite things to do with mountain biking is be able, being able to go to different places. What what are some of the places that you found that you really are kind of the goat that you really regularly go back to or they're always kind of in the back of your mind about wanting to get back there? Um, in places that really kind of resonate well with you as far as your riding style and just places you have a lot of fun at.
0: So my favorite place to ride is any place where there's like crux moves. If that makes any kind of sense, I would prefer to ride a technical hill climb with four giant step ups in it, you know, or four like real technical features that are really make or break type things than a relentless, It's like Rocky climb with say softball size loose rocks or something like that. They're both difficult in their own right, but I'd rather, I don't really like the death by a thousand cuts trails. I want to like have three or four moves that you either make or you're, or you're not versus like, because with my mindset, I'm, I'm never happy if I don't clean an entire trail. So I'd rather save up those, (laughs) save up those moves for like four big moves and, then try to ride something where it's just like relentless and there's like a hundred things that can make you make a tiny mistake. I'd rather try something and just fall off the bike completely, which I guess is like a little sadistic. Yeah. I guess that's because I rode trials for so long that, um, you know, if I, if I ride, I'm trying to think of a trail that, you know, the general audience might know, but I got one. I'd rather, what's that? Or Steve bench. Ooh, that was a tough one these bench see like the bottom of horseys bench if anybody's watched that video the bottom was my least favorite part because the first 40 yards to get into it there's nothing there that anybody would look at I'm, I'm sure the average rider thinks it's pretty it's all probably pretty ridiculous but like you look at that and it doesn't really look that hard the bottom entrance people focus on the the step up in the middle and stuff like that in my eyes that's the that's the easy stuff it's that annoying stuff at the bottom where it's just all loose rocks and a, you know, a two inch rock could be what makes you put your foot down and stupid little things that just lose traction. I'd rather just do one big oof and try to get up a handlebar height, step up in the middle or something like that. But the horsey's bench was, um, the horsey's bench was something that I had rode. I think 11 years ago I was at the fruit of fat tire festival or maybe, maybe even longer, about 12 years ago. And I have a picture of it back then. It's so much more eroded now, but we all rode that we all dropped into Horsky's bench and we rode it. And then when we all came out, I was joking about how it'd be cool to climb up it. And I, I tried it a handful of times back then and it was completely impossible. Um, So then fast forward till about three years ago when I was coming up with these trails, that's one of the things I didn't have the foresight with the trail channel. I thought, Well, like when I first started out, it was just going to be six videos a year. And I figured every season I could just do a new super technical trail. And then you start to realize like you kind of start to run out of not that there's not 50,000 technical trails around the country, but you run out, you start to run out of those like iconic ones, like a horse feast bench, like a, like a schooner's trace at Brown County, like the ones that really everybody knows about. And I think that's kind of the beauty of the video series because everything looks so easy online. I mean, I could watch a rampage run and and say to myself, I could do that. And there is no way on the face of the earth I've ever do that. But everything always looks easier on camera. So when you do that with technical riding, it's even amplified more because technical riding really looks easy. And I have really good friends that, you know, they'll still watch a trailblaze video and you know, they're, they're my pro rider friends and you could tell like they don't seem super impressed and then like we'll end up at that trail years later. And they'll be like, holy crap, this is impossible. I'm like, yeah, everything always looks easy online. So one of the beauties of that is the comment section. Like if you ride up horse these bench, I guarantee you there's tons of people that are like, oh, I could totally do that. But when, then, <laughs> when you read like 400 comments, like, man, that's impossible. I can't even walk up it or ride down it or whatever. Those are the people that sell it for you. They're the ones that, that make people realize like it's kind of difficult. So the horsey's bench thing, that's something that I saw 11 or 12 years ago. thought it would be cool. <clears throat> Maybe about three years ago, I was going through Fruta, Colorado. I had a Trail Boss episode from the Lunch Loop Trails, and that was only because I went to Fruta with the intention of riding a uh, horsey's bench, tried it like four or five times. It was literally 100 degrees out, and there was literally no way on the face of the earth I was ever getting up that trail without having a complete aneurysm. So I just gave up and then plan B was to go to the, the lunch loop trails. And we did a really fun episode on free lunch. But if you ever look through back to the trail boss archives and you see that old video, it was only because I couldn't even remotely come close to riding a horsey's bench. So that was in July that year, the following year, I went back for the fruity fat tire festival and it was in March. I figured that would be a much better time of the year to try it again because July obviously wasn't working. It was like way too hot. So then I have a video on my channel from about two years ago where I did the best I could do, but I didn't ride the whole thing. So I sort of like sessioned my way up it. I made a video just session, sessioning up it. And that thing did pretty good. And actually the funny part is I made a video of riding down it, which is fairly common. I mean, it's, it's pretty tough, but there's, tons of riders out there that could all ride up it. And the number one video from Horse Thieves on my channel is just me riding down it, which is hard, but there's plenty of people that could ride down it. But that March at the Fruit of Fat Tire Festival, I still wasn't able to even come close to riding up it. So then I was like, all right, back to the drawing board. We'll come back in the fall for Moab. And I did a bunch more training and stuff like that because the first time I was just too tired. Like it's, it's a pretty hard, effort because you start off the whole thing anaerobic right out of the gate and then you're trying to like keep going and it's, it's just really hard. So went back in the fall and it was a little bit cooler and I actually strategized that time and whatever. And I think maybe the fourth or fifth try of the day, I got pretty far in and uh, fortunately kept it going. On a trail like that, literally the worst thing that you could ever do is like get really far in and then screw up. It's If you're going to screw up, it's better to just screw up right at the beginning. Because when you get really far in, you know, say one or two or three minutes in and then you screw up, you just wasted all that energy because you're like completely gassed right off the bat. Like if you watch any of those videos, I'm breathing so hard. It sounds like I'm ready to have a heart attack, but it's because you have a camera like literally six inches from your mouth. And you're trying to like ride up that thing. It doesn't sound very good, but it all worked out. It was probably one of my bigger accomplishments for sure.
2: So here's where you're uh, where are supposed to insert. Victoria came out with these new Mazda tires.
0: <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. So it was 100 percent it was the Mazda. It was a few things. Um, well, I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence. I say that it, half
2: jokingly, but it, yeah, but
0: I, <laughs> I mean, you are you are half joking about that, but it but it is true because. I did have a different bike setup. The first time I tried to do it three years ago, or I'm sorry, twelve years ago, I was on a full suspension bike, couldn't come close. Three years ago, I was on a suspension bike, couldn't come close. Then the last two attempts were on a hardtail and the and the very last time that I did make it was on my signature hardtail. So I figured if it I can't blame it on the bike anymore, <laughs> it's a bike that I designed for Reeb and it's basically like a big giant trials bike, so um, equipment definitely did come into play. I just was, <clears throat> people are still watching that video. I got some questions this morning about, um, if I ride that clipped in or on pedals on flat pedals on that, I definitely clip in just cause it just, again, if you're gonna, that's a, the kind of trail, if you're trying to clean it, it doesn't matter if you can dab or something like that, I'd rather just go down with the ship. So I, I definitely clip in to just kind of keep your feet on the pedals. And if I'm going to dab, I'm going to start over anyway. So that makes it a little bit easier. Having a a frame that I designed to be super agile for doing that kind of stuff was convenient. Tire technology definitely, you know, if you watch that video, there's some spots where my tire is like literally dangling on by an inch and just having good tire compounds and stuff like that definitely comes into play. So we joke about it, but the technology does help you out quite a bit.
2: Oh, for sure. And you and just opened up a can of worms of clips versus flats that we're not going to go into, but it reminded me of a of a Rich Drew video that came out a year ago with him and his brother.
0: Oh, yeah. I love watching them, especially Rob. <laughs> Rob is like, Rob, whatever Rob says, I just want to cower and just do whatever he says.
2: <laughs> yeah, he's yeah. I've had I've had both those guys on this show as well. And it was it was a good interview. Yeah, we got I we got that, some digs I, in on Rich together. Oh,
0: totally. Totally. So.
2: So, so no clips well, or talk-
0: slides discussion, huh? Okay.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think I think, uh, think Rab summed it up perfectly when him and Rich did that video, and that is you do you because
0: you just you just talked about. I think that you definitely should do. I definitely think that you should do you, but I think that because I I vacillate all the time. I go back and forth, and I pretty much if I'm trail riding, ninety five percent of the time I clip in because it's easier. But I think that you need to develop the fundamental skills of flat pedals because I, there, I don't think there's any technique that the proper technique is how you would do it with clips. Mm-hmm. Like the proper technique for basically everything, your foot position is always better on flats, but there's no disputing that putting on clips is easier. So I think that you should go out and play and learn how to control your bike on flats, but Riding a super technical trail with baby head size rocks and stuff like that, it's annoying on flats. Like, there's no reason to torture yourself. So, go out, session one day a week with flats and get those fundamentals dialed, and then do what's most, like Rob said, do it, do what's most fun. But it's definitely you're doing yourself a disservice if you never, ever, ever run flats and just dial in those techniques.
2: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's when I met. At- braden bringhurst a, little, a year ago in bentonville just by chance i was actually surprised to see what he's doing is always on clips
0: yeah for the technical climbing it's definitely he's a power climber too so he's always printing and things powering mm-hmm. up those climbs and stuff like that so for him it's pretty important yeah
2: let's get into some communities you know i know before we uh When we, As we were trying to connect with this over email, you said you had just got back from Knoxville um, and you've made comments on your YouTube channel about Knoxville being like one of your favorite places to go. Let's talk about that a little bit.
0: Yeah. Um, Knoxville was a really pleasant surprise. I had gone to Bentonville to ride with Rich Mm -hmm. and the guys from Lomol. And we kind of just, that was the idea of the trip was to go to Bentonville. And then afterwards, Drew, who's the publisher of the Lomol website, Needed to go to Nashville. I needed to go back to New Jersey through Pisgah National Forest. And Knoxville just happened to be on the way. And I've been hearing a bunch of stuff from about Knoxville. And one of my buddies, night Eyed with uh, I'd Ride, was building a, stu- a lot of that stuff. So I knew that it had potential to be good, but I just never was able to really get to Knoxville. So when Drew needed to head East to go to Nashville, and I needed to go right through Knoxville, I just threw it out there like, hey, let's hit Knoxville on the way and just check it out. And we rolled in and this was after five days of Bentonville, which as far as like machine built flow trails, pretty darn good. We rolled into Knoxville and were completely floored with how awesome everything was. And unfortunately, it was only one day. So that that was November. And immediately afterwards, it was like full bore. I got to get back to Knoxville. So then we planned a trip for January with some buddies down to Florida, but the weather just didn't cooperate. We were gonna hit Knoxville on the way down. It didn't cooperate. Then we were gonna hit Knoxville on the way up. Weather didn't cooperate. So this time we decided to go a little bit later. So we went March a couple weeks ago. And it was really, really awesome. Awesome people. It's one of the it's a really cool place. Like you go there and you just feel like you are a local right off the bat. Everybody's super nice. I think that uh Bakers Creek Preserve definitely has a lot to do with that. It's like such a community feel at the bottom. It's like a big parking lot with play zones and stuff like that. And everybody just kind of hangs out. It's super friendly. And then the amount of trails that they have with the proximity to the urban area is super unique and is really cool. You, I've, seen, I've seen a lot of kids out there on brand new mountain bikes. And you talk to them and the whole reason they got those bikes is because of Bakers opening. So it's pretty awesome to like see that connection and see it actually getting people out on the bikes and, and experiencing the sport.
2: Yeah, we've seen that, especially... I mean, I've been to Bentonville. Usually, I usually go two, three times a year. It's 10 hours from where I live, especially this time of the year. You know, we're, We have snow melt going on enough, so you have the shoulder seasons to get out of that snow melt. Yep. But having that urban experience that Bentonville offers, which I think now a lot more communities are really buying into... And exactly what you just described about Knoxville, um, is a trend that hopefully continues to just skyrocket because it's it's getting a lot of people on bikes. It's getting a, it's, it's just opening a lot of doors. So to to hear that Knoxville is another one of those communities where it's really urban and you don't probably have to even drive to a trailhead. You can probably ride there. I'm assuming
0: from yeah. certain places.
2: Yeah. yeah. That's that to me is probably a, what really. I mean every. Not everyone can can afford to or has the means to go to an iconic location. You know, like a Moab right. or a Sedona or name your name your place, right? But to have that that's that's one of the amazing things that's going on in the sport right now.
0: So I think it's I think it's awesome too as like a proof of concept mm-hmm. as well. Like the more places like that that work, the more it shows other communities that it could work. Exactly. You know, it could be, it could be Knoxville right now and maybe it's Sparta, New Jersey or La Crosse, Wisconsin next, you know, after people see that it's not just, I mean, cause obviously the people that control the purse springs, purse strings, don't care if we have fun trails to shred. They want to know what the economic impact yeah. is going to be for the community. And when you, when you have places like that, that have a positive effect not only on the lifestyle, making it more fun for people like us, which is what we want, but politicians that like want tourism and you know stimulating the economy and stuff like that. When you have that proof of concept that it actually works um, and just makes the quality of living better across the board, not just for bike riders, um, I think that hopefully it leads to more of these places opening. Yeah, and I think
2: this is a topic I've hit on quite a bit too with. We're not just on the show, but just in, in conversations, um, really like to hit on the, the, the lifestyle or quality of life aspect on top of the tourism. And we were talking about that a couple of years before COVID hit. And I'd bring up, well, people can ro- work remotely and people are now choosing right. to live based on a lifestyle versus a career. And then COVID hit. Right. And now the whole remote work thing is like, not only is it a thing, it's like a forced
0: thing. It is. And, it, you know, and I think as it gets proven to be effective, you know, like I don't think a lot of companies are really having problems with employees working remote. They seem to be more efficient than ever. And the, you know, I have a lot of friends that work in different uh, industries, either renovating office spaces, or I've been in some of these big corporations where they rent huge office spaces and it's millions and millions of dollars. And if you could allow your Employees to live anywhere, and they're still as effective. They're not going to choose some of the places that they would have chosen in the past. Yeah, you know, yeah. So that's Why? that's it's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. So,
2: do you have any um in your travels? Do you have any other communities that um, kind of hit uh, resonate like that, like the Knoxville, next like, the like the Bentonville, that you get the urban feel, or you can ride ride to ride instead of driving to a trailhead that you've came across that really kind of
0: stick out. It's not as big, but it, it's one of my original favorites, uh, Richmond, Virginia. They have the James River Park system. And it's only, I think, well, they, they add little extensions and stuff like that. They used to have like a main loop that was about a 10-mile loop. It's, I'm sure you could milk out 12, 13, 14, 15 miles, but it's all right downtown. The river runs through downtown Richmond. And the James River Trail system runs up and down the banks of the river on both sides. And it's, it's super fun. It's super easy to navigate. It's got a good variety of terrain. It's fast and flowy stuff. And then you could literally get coffee, beer, food, whatever you want afterwards. So that's always been one of my favorites. That's, and I've known about that one for probably over 12 years. So I'd say like that's one of the OG urban. Trail systems that I've been familiar with.
2: Let's get into uh, the organizations that you support and why you support them. You know, you have the the Candide. I think that's Cand Aid's the it. big one.
0: Yep. Yeah, yeah, Candide a big one. Um, that started about five years ago. I was first got involved with Oscar Blues as a partner, and they were one of the original sponsors of the Trail Boss Series as well. But Oscar Blues does a lot of uh, work. Did make, hopefully we get back to it? A lot of uh, festivals as well. So they would have a craft beer festival called Burning Can. So when I first got involved with Oscar Blues, it was to you know everybody likes an Opre beverage, so it made sense for me. I they were super nice people. They put on a a music tour called Burning Can. It was a craft beer and music festival. They so had three events that they were doing. So the idea was that I would go and do mountain bike trials demonstrations because they've always been involved with mountain biking. It's always been in their DNA a little bit. Um, so it was a perfect opportunity for me to go and do mountain biking at their craft beer festival. So that's where that relationship started. And then within the first couple months of working with them, they had Candade, which is their not, which was their uh, Oscar blues nonprofit. It's since split off. But then back then they were born to disaster relief and stuff like that because Oscar or Oscar Blues founded Candade when the town of Lyons in Colorado flooded. And that's where they were based out of originally. And all the residents lost homes and lost stuff like that. So they were canning water to give to residents. That's one of the reasons why it's called Candaid. And then they were doing like grants and stuff to locals. So that was years ago. When I got involved with Oscar Blues, they they still had Candid, obviously, and they were just starting to tinker with the idea of doing more types of donations to underprivileged kids. And obviously bikes was on a radar. So I was actually involved with the first bike donation for Candid. And we went in and we gave an entire first grade class their first ever bikes and helmets. And I did a riding demonstration for them and it was awesome. So it's something I had done my whole life, gone and done, done. Riding demonstrations, but I had never been able to get kids excited about bikes and then give those kids that are just excited about bikes the opportunity to actually own their own bicycle. It's something that I took for granted as, you know, a middle class kid from New Jersey. Like my parents just bought me my first ever bike. Um, and then these kids are in a position where they might think cycling is cool, but they might not have the means to get their first bike. So, The first event I did, I was instantly hooked. It was like the coolest thing I'd probably ever done in my career was being able to see the look on these kids' faces and give them their first bike. And it's been super rewarding. It's been the organization I've worked with for uh, close to five years now. And there's been a handful of places where we've donated bikes that I've gone back to for other reasons. And you talk to these kids a year or two later, and they're still riding bikes which is really awesome because a lot of times you go in, you give the bikes and then you never go back. So you wonder like, did it catch on? Are these kids actually riding bikes? Did it have an impact? And I've been lucky enough to go back to some of these places and see that it truly does have an impact. Like they really are riding their bikes. Their faces light up to tell you how they've been riding the bike ever since you gave it to them and stuff like that. So pretty awesome.
2: Yeah. So you brought up Oscar Blues, yeah, which is another one of your people that you work with. And where I'm going with that is Reeb. Yep. So let's talk about Reeb a little bit, and maybe your
0: other uh, other people that support you through this. And- the Reeb thing was was uh, something that a lot of people didn't see coming. It's something that I wouldn't have seen coming four years ago, whatever. Um, my whole professional career, I wrote for. Twin for five years, and then I rode for Giant for 17 years. And the last couple years with Giant, with the whole direct consumer model happening and Trek Giant specialized fighting for floor space at shops, you know, everybody has their different way of trying to shore up that distribution. And I think for a lot of those big brands, they all have different strategies without getting like into the bike industry too much, but you know, there's trek owned. Trek completely owns the shops now and specialize will leverage you to carry a certain percentage of bikes if you want their bikes at all. And and Giant's model was pushing the, the GRP model, Giant Retail Partner model. And I guess their vision at the time was to have... If you walked into a Giant Retail Partner store in La Crosse, Wisconsin or Phoenix, Arizona, they want it to all look the same, feel the same, have a consistent branding, whatever, which is a great idea. But it doesn't build the really cool, unique bike shops that we've all been into that all have like their local flavor, you know? So as they were pushing that model, one of the main pieces of their activation when they get these new shops to sign on would be a big grand opening celebration. And prior to my last couple years at Giant, I was trying to get away from all the trials, demos or... More like parking lot demos and stuff like that. I loved going to big events where there's a huge crowd and stuff like that because if there's a huge crowd, I love entertaining them and stuff like that. But as YouTube was getting more popular and stuff like that, when I used to do a trials demo 10 years ago prior to YouTube, if you went to La, La Crosse, Wisconsin, that's a big deal. People are like, wow, I want to see trials. I've never even seen that. You know, I want to see it in real life. And then now you could watch literally anything on YouTube and stuff probably better than what you're gonna do first try in the middle of a demo. So even though it's a completely different feel and, and you get to interact with the crowd and it's fun and whatever, nobody's seeing anything they haven't seen before. So that novelty's kind of out the window. So I started to notice that people were way more inclined to come and do a ride with me and go down a trail and like feel like they're doing something as well. And then I could like do some tricks on the trail and instruct them or whatever like that was way more impactful than running around and doing all these demos at these bike shops because at the end of the day nine times out of ten they were people that weren't necessarily embedded in the cycling communities because i feel like if you or i riding our bikes forever opened a bike shop in our hometown everybody would know that we're the bike rider we know all the bike riders and whatever and probably want a shop that was like ours, you know, like our look and feel and there. So I just kind of started to feel like I was getting to the point where I was running around 30 weekends a year going to these cookie cutter bike shops and the consumers didn't really seem to care because nobody was coming and I was just pretty burnt out. And I think that giant probably felt like they could do something cheaper <laughs> as well. So we just came to the point where like it, we just knew it wasn't wasn't going to work anymore. And when I left giant, I was doing what I thought I needed to do. I started talking to all the big bike brands and I knew about Reed, but Reed was, we're super small. We make a couple hundred bikes a year. Everything's handcrafted in Colorado. So I knew about Reeb. but I thought that the only way to make this work was to ride for another big bike brand. So I started talking to all the big bike brands and I was honestly pretty surprised at 48. Years old. How many of those big bike brands were actually interested in talking to me? Because I didn't know. Like, is this it? Is the gig up, or whatever? And it was actually a pretty rewarding process because I I discovered that it didn't seem like the bike industry was done with me yet. There there was quite a bit of interest out there. But even though I had like interest, it still wasn't super rewarding because I was like, this just feels like kicking the can down the street a little bit longer. You know, it's going to be the same thing. I rode for Giant. I figured I'd work for Giant someday. And then next thing you know, you're like, I guess I'm not working for Giant someday. So now it's just like on to the next thing and then you're going to just be further down the road. So I had a bunch of offers. I was pretty much settled on one. And then Diana, who runs Candid, put together an email to the guys from Reeve and myself saying, farewell Giant, hello Reeb And I was like, well, that would be really, really, really awesome because I grew up bike riding and skateboarding and like in, in BMX, it's always been about core brands, you know, the big brands are lame, the core brands are cool, but I just don't see how that could work. You know, like I don't see how they could afford to bring me on board without it just being like a total favor or something like that. So um, we decided to hop on a phone call and that's when I learned what a tight crew Reeve is and the value that I could bring to the brand other than just being a rider. And we put together a deal that worked. And now it's you know just a handful of us and I do ride for them and they're my sponsor. And you know I do everything I would have done for a brand as an athlete. But I also help with OE relationships, figuring out what spec we get on the bikes. I'll gladly hop on phone calls to bike shops or riders and, and sell a read or custom spec a read. So it's really cool. It's all hands on deck we all have say in stuff that we do. Um, Yesterday, I was designing a Reap hat. The day before, I priced out a $10,000, like the sickest dream build ever bike for somebody. And probably last week, I was helping come up with... Well, I was doing color research for our new bike. So it's really, really, really cool. And after being involved in the bike industry for so long, having a place to hang my hat, where you're part of something, not just um a marketing tool is really, really rewarding.
2: Oh yeah, I bet. And you know, you said eventually working for Giant earlier. That probably would have been an, an easy transition for you considering how you started out as a person with Xeroxing resumes at a plastic manufacturer,
0: you know, so to to work on that side of things. I went to college for sports marketing. Okay. So that definitely helped. Like my job after college wasn't my degree. Okay. Which made it a little bit easier to leave. I had worked at that place through college. And that's why when I was graduating, they're like, hey, do you want a job? So I took a job because it was easy. But my degree was in sports marketing. It wasn't in production engineering, which is what the job was. So that was the other thing. When I decided to leave that job to ride for Schwinn, I figured, well, even if I just do it for a year or two, then I'll just get a sports marketing job. And I don't know if we, I mean, we're talking for quite a long time now, so I'm gonna go back to one of the questions that you had that you sent me in the email that I quickly glanced over, and it was how's the transition from an athlete to content creator been? And like how's how you know, what's that like? And I think that it's it's definitely a strange transition because I came from an era of everything being like a meritocracy or whatever. It's all based off of media when I first started so the only way to get media was like win a competition or you know do something that then this these gatekeepers of media would then put you in a magazine put you in a video or whatever so once you earn that spot you had to try to hold that spot but you weren't competing against an onslaught of other people so i guess the one thing that is unique for for my career as a trials writer is when i was at that company making all those resumes and Xeroxing everything. I I already knew that I wasn't a downhill racer and I wasn't a cross country racer. Back then, if I was a national championship downhill racer or a national champion cross country racer, I wouldn't need to be making resumes and sending them to bike companies. They would be pounding down your door to sponsor you. But as a trials rider, you still needed to convince people of why they needed a trials rider. Nobody was looking for trials riders back in the day. and so one of the main benefits that I offered to do for Schwinn was to do these traveling trial shows. So my career was always based on like having some level of proficiency as a rider, but always trying to figure out a way to take this weird type of writing that I enjoyed doing and then putting it in front of people. So for a downhill racer to get into YouTubing, that's pretty weird because a downhill racer whose job is to put his leg over the bike and go as fast as possible. And then to try to figure out a way to engage an audience. It's not necessarily in their DNA from what they've always done. But as a trials rider, I could win all the trials competitions in the world and nobody cared. They only cared about how many trials demos that you did. So that's, a, that's the one piece. That's the one piece a lot of my trials rider friends always missed. We would do competitions. They might win one. I might win one whatever but when they'd win a trials competition they, they always thought they were at the finish line and I always knew that that was the starting line that's the one that's the one piece of the puzzle that a lot of the trials riders missed so they would do a competition and if they won they would think that they were at the finish line and I would always think no guys we're at the starting line now that now that we won this event, we need to go to some bike shops and get some demos because now you're national champion or national number two or whatever. So all those trials demos I did back in the day, I feel like it was just live YouTubing. You know, my, my career has always been about trying to figure out a way to get my weird skills in front of an audience. Back then it was what you could, all the obstacles you could bring in a truck and trailer and what you could do in a parking lot and now 25 years later i don't need to do that i can go out on any trail in the world and make a video but it's still it's just a it's still a demonstration it's, still, it's just not a live one anymore and then figure out a way to get in front of an audience
2: yeah yeah which is good cuz i think it's more relatable too you know not many people can relate to um, setting up obstacles and that but everybody can relate to getting out on a trail
0: yeah it's 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 pretty cool so it it actually hasn't been like a super weird transition for me because I've always been used to trying to show your value. Yeah.
2: Well, let's uh let's finish up on showing your value. We've talked about Reeb. You want to talk about Pearl Zumi or any of the other brands that um you provide value to so we can get get them. I mean Pearl Zumi is a brand that obviously you've had them on I've had them on this podcast. I've had a couple of their people on this podcast and it's a brand that I really, I think it's a one. It's a brand that I really respect personally, you know. And I don't have support from anybody. Same with Vittoria. I buy. I'm a. I'm a Vittoria buyer of tires, and I've gotten more people on Vittoria tires in my local community. Really? Just yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And you know, a couple of years ago, when I was, I, I, my main background up until recently was more marathon distance cross country. Okay. I was, I've put more people on mezcal's. Oh, nice. Those are good tires. They actually know, like other bike shops know if they see a tire track in the ground that it's a Mezcal, they know where that rider ride, where they get their stuff, what shop that comes from. Nice. That's awesome. (laughs) This is pretty funny, you know, but yeah, let's talk about, you know, your, your people, your, your companies.
0: Yeah. So basically when I put together my new program, I guess it's almost going on. This is the third year now. I didn't start with a completely clean slate because I did have. Some partners that have been partners for a really long time, so brands like Shimano and Vittoria have supported me for you know five to ten years at least. Um, and one of the things that I've always prided myself on and felt super super fortunate was to be able to work with brands that I wanted to to work with and like whose products that I really liked using. I never really had to do something for the money. I did that. I think my third year on Schwinn, I took a tire deal for the money, and I learned back then like it, it's not worth it when you ride a bike for an entire year on stuff that you think sucks. It's just not worth it. It's not fun. You, you don't you don't ride as well. You don't have fun riding your bike. Today. Is that when the Sharpie came out? Uh, no, I actually like. And I'm not talking to you specifically,
2: yeah. but you'd see that back in the day. Like you'd see people sharpieing outside
0: walls. Definitely for you know for for downhill racing and stuff like that you could people would definitely sharpie stuff out but for for trials riding and stuff like that the, the tires weren't that bad for actual trials but that's when we were starting to get into street riding as well so it wasn't really worth like you could do it it just sucked like it wasn't like I was not winning a street competition cuz street you just did it to do it it wasn't like I was giving up results, I just like would go riding with my buddies and I'd be street riding on knobby tires. It was basically because the brand only had one one type of tire. And so you you know yeah. Maxis at the time would have something for everybody and, and I had a knobby tire. If I was doing trials, it was great. If I was doing dirt jumping, it wasn't so great. If you're street riding, it wasn't so great. If you were cross-country riding, it was pretty terrible. So I learned pretty early, <laughs> don't don't do that. So and the other cool thing is just from like riding forever, a lot of my sponsors I get to collaborate with now. So that's kind of a, a blessing and a curse. Like with with Reed, sometimes I'll go... Everything we make, we have stock geometries, but we make a lot of custom stuff. And I just got a new bike recently and I spent months deliberating geometries and stuff like that. And then, and I'll just like rack my brain because I'm trying to come up with like the most perfect bike for me. And when you design the bike, If it sucks, you have nobody to blame but yourself. So you really got to nail it. And then I'll have friends sometimes and they're like, wow, that must be so awesome. Like getting to design your own bike. And I'm like, you have no idea how hard it is because if somebody just hands you a bike and it sucks, you could convince yourself that maybe it's, you You know, maybe it's a you problem or I need to figure out how to ride this bike because it just, it is what it is and you got to figure out how to ride it. If you design your own bike and you don't like it, then, or or, or if you can design anything, you're always going to wonder: Should I have made the top too long? Should I have made the chain stay shorter? Should I have made the seat tube steeper? Like you question all that stuff in your head. So it's really, really, really hard to nail it. I feel like I did on my last bike, which is which is awesome, but it definitely is a different dynamic. Like when you design the bike and you have to nail it, it I feel like it's more pressure. But that's one of the cool things about working with Reeb. Like, it's definitely like performing without it. That you really have to nail everything. And fortunately, on my hardtail, we I made the guys make me a few prototypes until I nailed it. Yeah, you gotta you gotta come up with it all in your head. So Reeb has been awesome. That's you know I never had the opportunity to have that much influence in a brand, and. The cool thing about joining them is their bikes always were really, really, really awesome quality. So when I joined Reeve, I didn't have to try to convince anybody that the bikes were good. Everybody knew that the bikes... Anybody that knew of Reeb knew that the bikes were good. The really cool thing was all I would hear all the time is, Wow, I've never heard of them. You know, I got to check them out. And that's like, as a sponsored athlete, that's the best thing you could ever hear. Because when somebody says that, you know that the bikes are good. So you're not like fringing like oh don't don't look into it you're you're proud and you want them to look into it because everything they make has always been awesome the first suspension bike I got from them it was the best it was literally the best bike I've ever ridden and we've only made it better and I got one of their stock hardtails and I thought it was really cool but there was some things I wanted to change so within like six months of riding for a brand we decided to start working on a signature hardtail which was called the we had the bike called the ridiculous so it was supposed to be the reeb ridiculous and then i was like let's take this thing and push it a little bit further so we made the ridiculous so my signature bike from reeb is the ridiculous and that's the one that i, I made them make me a handful of prototypes because the first one i just spitballed and it wasn't really quite right and then the second one was pretty close and then the third one, I totally nailed it. But like I said, that's when I would talk to friends and they'd be like, oh, it's so cool to design, you know, get to design anything. And I'm like, you don't understand the pressure. Every time those guys fire up the welding torch and I gave them a, a bad idea for a prototype, I feel bad. But <laughs> we <laughs> finally nailed it. And I could not be more stoked with that bike. I've been working with DVO for a few years. That's something that I carried over from Giant. And that was super important to me because when I switched to a new bike brand, I wanted to work with a partner that I knew would help us dial in the suspension. Perfect. So I didn't want to like switch to anybody new or, or whatever. And the guys from DVL have been, been great. They've, they've helped us work with Reeb a little bit on shock tunes and things like that to just really make that bike as good as possible. So having a partner like that, they're right, in Cali- they're right in California. You could pick up the phone and talk to the shock tuners any time of day, even as consumers. It's, it's pretty cool. Um, having that type of relationship has been awesome. Orange Seal came on board three years ago. And um, they've made a ton of this stuff possible. They're a sponsor of the YouTube series and channel and everything. So Orange Seal has been great. Uh, the last thing you want to do is get flat tires when you're out on the trail, pretty much as a... Our Ride Ruiner. So they've been great. Carried over some other partners like MRP for chain guides and stuff. That's been awesome. Um, Wahoo Computers is a partner that came on because of the YouTube channel. So the YouTube channel has re- really offered a lot of new opportunities. It's been pretty awesome because um, they're all useful products. And when you're getting out there and trying to find new trails, A bike computer totally makes sense, you know, if you're just doing trials demos, those things don't really make sense when you're getting out, trying to explore new trails, having a GPS computer, all those things are are good quality organic relationships that you're not just like doing to do, you're doing it because it's like partners that you believe in. So it's been pretty awesome.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And your brands, I mean, you hit it again with the whole orange seal. I mean, I've as a consumer, tried a bunch of different sealants and in the last two years I've settled in orange seal and gone back time and time again for, because it just works.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's pretty awesome. You know, I've been riding for a really long time. And if I look down at my bike, you know, a Reeb frame, a DVO fork, industry, nine wheels, Vittoria tires, Shimano drivetrain and brakes, PNW dropper posts, Ergon grips and saddle. Like it literally all is the best of the best. If I was, Thinking up my dream bike of things I'd have to pay for, I'd gladly pay for that stuff yep. all day long. There's no like funky stuff on there. There's no weird things that you're just trying to do to get a paycheck or anything like that. So I'm super, super, super lucky to be in that position.
2: Yeah. And, and we didn't even really talk about Shimano. That's actually, it's, I switched my bike from a 2020 to a 2021. Same exact model, same everything, same color. I did it only to get on new XTR and go from XX. Oh, nice. And one of the things I really like about what Shimano is doing now is that literally they're from Dior up to to XTR. The quality of how it functions is totally there. Yeah.
0: Sometimes I joke with the guys at Shimano that they make the the lower end stuff too good. I would agree with that. Because as a consumer, there's features like, there's features that XCR has over XT and stuff like that. But the average rider, if you close your eyes, you'd be hard-pressed to tell the difference. So one of the cool things about putting together this new program and including Pearl Azumi is since I find myself mountain biking all over the country or world nowadays and riding more diverse places than ever, like I wanted to try to choose a brand that made everything. Winter clothes, summer clothes. Enduro Road, I wanted to make sure that I, I found a partner that pretty much made anything for any kind of situation that I ended up with. So Pearl Izumi came to mind. And then once I started talking to them, we realized that could be a big partnership beyond just the apparel. Um, so it's been cool. It's great as a rider knowing that you have the most technical stuff out there because I've ridden for other brands that, you know, aren't quite high tech and you find yourself on a hundred degree day and you're feel like you're wearing a garbage bag or it's the, it's the winter time and you don't have winter gloves and stuff like that. So covering all those bases with a brand like Pearl Azumi is awesome. But the thing that makes that whole relationship even more special is their supportive candidate as well. So that was something that I started working with Pearl Azumi a couple months down the line at the first Sea Otter. Josh, who's one of the employees for Prolozumi, came to a Candade bike build that we put on and got down and dirty with us and helped out, helped build some bikes, and then took the word back to, to Prolozumi. And then I started talking to Prolozumi about ways that they could support Candade. And fast forward a few months later, we did a Prolozumi jersey with a bunch of the proceeds going to Candade. And they've done other grants to Candade. So just seeing that full circle, seeing them support initiatives that are so important to me and just the bike riding community in general. Plus, making really good apparel and stuff like that. Those are the types of relationships that I really hold dear nowadays is when you could have good product, when you could actually get on the phone with product managers and designers and, and have some influence too. Now that I've been with the brand for this is my third year, I could even see elements of things that we talked about a year ago starting to come out like 2023 product lines and stuff like that. That's awesome. But then also when you go on the ProZoomy website, and you see a Candade jersey that we all work together in collaboration. Candade, Taj Mahalik, an a illustrator that I'm friends with, did the illustration for it. Seeing it on the ProZoomy website, like those are the things that are really, really cool and make those relationships way more rewarding than... Just cool gear.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and you've yeah, you're nailing it with all the with all your supporters. And Pearl Zoom is definitely one of those brands. They they put out good they just put out really good stories about being on bikes too. Not even just mountain bikes, but
0: yep. all bikes. That's that's me. I love anything with two wheels. I'm a little tall for a BMX bike. <laughs> but yeah. I'll get on one from time to time. But if it has two wheels, I wanna I wanna Get on and ride it—road, gravel, mountain, whatever. Yeah, awesome.
2: Well, Jeff, again, I thank you very much for for taking the time and sharing your knowledge and and sharing everything that you have to share um, on this on this show. It's it's really good stuff. So it's it's really appreciated.
0: Cool. Well, thank you for having me, and I hope everybody enjoys listening to me babble on and on and on and on.
1: Thank you very much for listening to the Jeff Linowski interview. For next week's show, we will be featuring Angie Weston of the Radical Roots Mountain Bike Construction. This show will focus 100% on women and girls in mountain biking, along with how we can bring a more diverse, welcoming community to the world of mountain biking. If you like what you've heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be in the show and the podcast series itself. Also, please remember to leave a comment and rate the show wherever you consume your podcast. This podcast has been made possible by Mountain Bike Radio, Smith's Bike Shop in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and is an Evolution Trail Services production. If you have ideas and future communities or people to feature in Trailfect, please don't hesitate to reach out by emailing evolutiontrails at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening.